This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Susan, you know, we all carry around different stressors, some big and some small. And sometimes they all tend to hit you at once on the same day. Yeah, like today. (laughs) It's not been a great day. More on that later on the show. But we all carry around these stressors, and keeping them bottled up can affect us negatively. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself and isn't just for those who experience major trauma. It's also for those who've experienced a lot of bad things happening on one day. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash proof today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash proof. Hi, and welcome to this week's Sidebar. We're here to discuss episode five, Cat and Mouse Game, of season two of Proof. And we're here this week with Jacinda, and also a special guest, uh, Bob Mata from The Defense Diaries. Hey, Bob. Hey, what's up, ladies? Thanks for having me. Great to have you today. Um, Now, Bob is a defense attorney as well, so we really wanted to have him on to talk about Jake's trial, everything that happened there, (laughs) which we'll get into (laughs) shortly. (laughs) Bob, for people who don't know your podcast, you want to give us a pitch reel on The Defense Diaries? Sure. Uh, I'd say two and a half years ago, I decided to... Unlike Susan, I abandoned the law game and left my wife with all of our clients and all the enormous amount of work. So she's the hero of the story because she allowed me to to come and really follow my dream. And I wanted to do a podcast because I had these Gacy tapes. My father was John Wayne Gacy's attorney back in 1979, 7080. He was his trial attorney. And many years ago, he gave me all of his taped interviews with Gacy which I held on to, and it was him prepping his client for trial, and Gacy had waived privilege all the way back then because that's how he was anticipating that Sam and my father uh, were going to get paid on the case. And I didn't know what to do with them. And as I grew older and podcasts became a thing, I started tinkering with the concept of doing a podcast. And uh, ultimately, that's what I did. I had first season, which was a serialized season on, on John Wayne Gacy, but it wasn't really about Gacy. I really wanted to focus on the victims. I wanted to focus on the investigation, the arrest, and the trial. And what I uncovered in terms of how the police actually got Gacy under arrest is mind-blowing, frankly. It was, and I'm not going to give a spoiler, but when I say it's mind-blowing, it's it's insane. And it's epic. It's 36 episodes. So if you're into deep dives, it is a very, very deep dive. And I play the tapes, but I can weave them into a narrative it's not like just me playing tapes. I just try to fit pieces of the interviews between my father and, and Gacy where he's preparing them for an insanity defense case like throughout the series. And we think it's pretty good. And then our second season is a, a case that my wife and I handled and my father actually in Omaha, Nebraska, Dr. Anthony Garcia. He was accused and ultimately convicted of murdering four individuals over a five-year period and two double homicides on a revenge 
theme by the state in that they felt that he was seeking revenge for being fired seven years earlier from his residency in the pathology department at uh, Creighton Medical School. So it was a crazy, crazy case procedurally. It's unbelievable. Like a lot of similarities to what's going on in Delphi right now in terms of the procedural side of it, not even getting to the trial portion of it. It was it was a hard-fought case, let me put it that way. It was a, it was a death penalty case, and, and uh, we believed in our case. So, um, you know, we, we took it to the mat. And then uh, the other thing that we do is the docket. And, and there I was smart enough to bring my brilliant wife on, and she co-hosts it with me. And uh, that's where we cover all the current and uh, kind of breaking news. And, and we've covered a lot of cases there. And it's more of a banter show, whereas my serialized is just me scripted you know, kind of going through the story. So that's basically the long and the short. I think it's a pretty good pod and uh, we'd love if you checked it out. Yeah, please do. If anyone hasn't listened, check it out. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And as you've mentioned a little, uh, your background before this was as a defense attorney. Yes. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts from a attorney perspective on what happened at Jake's trial. Uh, it's like, I'm sure, Susan, that when you, kind of started digging into it <laughs> you were you were frustrated the evidence or lack thereof in the conviction of both ty and jake it's stunning to me and it's frankly it's terrifying and when you have a case like this as i listened to the first five episodes it's so frustrating and it's so so scary because they have no evidence whatsoever linking either of them well I feel like Jake's conviction I've seen before. Like this case reminds me of a lot of other cases I've worked on. I'm not shocked by the fact there was a guilty verdict. It makes sense to me. Like it tracks with similar cases where things went haywire, but I'm familiar with that kind of progression. Ty's trial still shocks me. That was still a gut punch, even after working these cases for years now, because Ty's trial had nothing. Nothing. It's a reminder that a case literally can't have nothing and a jury can still convict. Took them four days. So, you know, they were hemming and hawing over it, but it is still, yeah, it's almost kind of an indictment of the jury system. I mean, it is in no universe should reasonable doubt have been exceeded at Ty's trial. Yeah. And it's with Ty, especially they didn't have that motive, which we all know that you don't have to prove at trial, but people love it. The state loves it. They love being able to tell the jury why this is why it happened. The jury sitting there wondering why, which is what they should have been wondering with respect to Ty. You know, like, where's the motive here? Sounds like he was a thief, you know, kind of a schmuck, but not like a violent dude. His daughter said it best, I think, when she pointed out, like, so you're telling me my dad is at a party raping and murdering everyone's friend and they're just standing around watching? Like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's implausible. It's like the accused, you know, with Jodie Foster. It's like, except it's high school kids instead of a bunch of drunk dudes in a bar. You know, like, that's what you're subbing out that just happened or they're alleging happened in this Home Depot construction site. And it's like, there's no way. If we're talking 25 to 30 people, I'm fairly certain just about anybody could have been stopped. And I just can't see a world in which a bunch of girls would be standing there just watching this happen and there's just no way susan said it i don't know if it was in three or four we were talking about there is no world in which 25 kids have been able to keep this secret for all these years 
There's no way. That is an impossibility to me. That, to me, is the biggest driving factor in not only Ty, but Jake's innocence. Like, I just, I cannot see a world in which that exists where somebody's not sitting there for all these years knowing that either this happened or it didn't happen, but especially if it didn't happen, just not feeling guilty. Like, oh my God, these two guys have been in prison for 25 years or going on 25 years. And like, I have the ability to get them out. You know, it's like, it just seems, it seems impossible to me. It really does. Well, in this episode, we do cover a lot of the evidence they had against Jake, mostly other teenagers who knew him or knew Renee and what they had to say about their relationship. But we actually did not cover some of the more significant evidence in the state's case. There were two witnesses called at trial who were second probably only to Josh Burroughs. Now, we didn't include them in the episode for reasons we'll get into in a bit, but here is what those two witnesses, Ryan Kerr and Troy Tulin, testified to at trial. After Renee's murder, Josh had gotten in some legal trouble with a couple of auto theft charges. During the months that investigators were interrogating him, he was in and out of juvenile hall. Two of the teens that Josh was in juvie with were Troy Tulin and Ryan Kerr. They were all part of the same skate crew, a group called Grim Crew, that Jake Silva had been in too. That had made them all, as Troy had once described it, Grim Brothers. And Jake had confessed to two of his Grim Brothers that he had killed Renee. In February 2001, 16-year-old Troy Tulin was in Juvenile Hall when Detective Susan Wells came to speak to him. Troy told them he'd been hosting a party at his house one night when the phone rang. It was Jake Silva. And Jake sounded upset. He sounded like he needed to talk to someone. Jake tells Troy over the phone he'd been mad at Renee for cheating on him. So another friend of his has suggested, hey, let's teach this broad a lesson. Let's get her high and rape her. So Jake and Fuji and five others did just that. They took Renee to Lathrop Road, raped her, and then stabbed her to death. Jake ends the call by telling Troy that he now needs to flee town and that he'll probably go to Nevada or something. 17-year-old Ryan Kerr told Sousa and Wells a similar story. He said he'd been at Troy's house partying when Jake called. Ryan had grabbed the phone from Troy and Jake told him about how, on Memorial Day, he and Ty and Fuji and Ray had all been riding around in their white truck when they'd picked up Renee and took her out to the orchard. There, they, quote, beat the hell out of her, and then they took her to Home Depot, where Jake killed her, and they all raped her, in that order. I mean, did either of those stories line up with the with the pathology report i thought the cause of death was strangulation they're absolutely not that's part of why it's so frustrating because these two stories don't match at all moreover in fact the stories don't match each other because uh one of the boys troy tulin says that ryan the other was not at this party ryan like inserts himself into the party after the fact but according to troy's version of it ryan's not even there 
But in closing arguments, the prosecutor, Charles Schultz, mentions them by name over 50 times and talks about how like they're so amazing at corroborating each other and the state's case and asks the jury, how could they have made this up if it wasn't true? Why would they make it up? But like Josh Burroughs, both of them recanted at trial. They got on the stand and said they made the whole thing up. Never happened. One of them testified, I just told the detectives what they wanted to hear. I didn't think they'd believe me, but then it turned out a lot worse than I thought. Wow. So they recanted trial. And, and so what happens? Did they have to try to impeach their own witness at trial? Yeah. So oh the detectives get up and say, here's what they told me. And that's the true version. They're lying on the stand because they're all part of Grim Crew. And Grim Crew will kill them if they testify publicly. So that's why they're lying now. Oh, my God. I, I marauding bands of like skateboarder murdering like skateboarding crews like a real thing like that you, <laughs> you guys are aware of I, I, I mean my, my son was a skater you know like a hardcore skater and these guys were like the furthest thing from like murders you know these aren't like bikers these are like skate punks it's like you know just go ever they skate everywhere all they care about is skating and learning how to ollie and do tricks like that's what their life revolves around certainly not murdering and you know we're slinging drugs on the side and the whole thing just seems insane to me like look skaters were theory. a huge problem in antica they were grinding on curbs all over the place and causing damage it was a big issue <laughs> for real <laughs> yeah i i could see that them you know grinding on rails like people be trying to walk down like a flight of stairs and some kids like grinding down the rails they had to clear the streets of those uh those kids, I can tell that that was probably a real big motive for them behind the law enforcement side of it. In this case in particular, I, I hope you all get some calls. I, I hope, I hope, I hope that somebody really comes forward. I know you guys are asking like the end of every episode, you know, if you know anything about the case. And I hope you get one of those calls. I really do. Because this is a frustrating case in so many ways because it's just, it shines a light on, you know, kind of the warts of our system, you know, and like you said, I mean, it's the best that there is, I guess, you know, but it's still got a lot of flaws. Bob, you might find this interesting. I've never encountered it before. But in this case, when they had the so prospective jurors come in and you give them a questionnaire where they say, like, do you know any of these possible witnesses? One of those possible jurors picked off that she knew one of the two boys and she wrote, I'm his aunt. He told me that he did tell the police that Jake had confessed to him, but that he'd made the whole story up to try and get out of juvie. And of wow. course, the judge is like scrambling to like excuse from the jury. Wow. Um, and that was it. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> no, I have never run across that. And we get those jury questionnaires as well, you know, asking if you know any of the cops or the witnesses or the judges or lawyers. I've never run into that ever. Yeah. Wow. That's that's crazy. That's the frustrating thing is that and I forget who it was i don't know it was somebody that you guys were able to interview and he was talking about you know how it is to be a 16 year old when the cops are coming at you like that you know and you're just trying to get out of the room and and you know they have you in there for hours and they're saying they know this and they say they know that and then ultimately you're just saying whatever the hell you think that they want to hear so that you can get out of the room because kids aren't thinking about it in terms of long-term yeah. the, the, the long-term ramifications of what they're saying in the moment. You know what I mean? They're just, they're, they're not doing that because their minds aren't completely formed. And where the hell were their parents when they're interviewing all these kids? Were their parents in the room? No. Oh never. my God. That's insane. 
Like, I mean, that's, it, it's insane. The whole case is insane, really. They, they mostly would just go to the skate park, pick up the kids there and talk to them. So like the parents aren't even aware it's happening. And drop them back off. Yeah. It's crazy. And you're right. The kids, they don't think ahead. They don't know what they're saying could have long-term effects. Also because it's so ridiculous to them. They know they're lying and they assume the cops will realize they're lying Figure too. And they can... In the case of uh, Troy Tulin and Ryan Kerr, and the reason we don't talk about it in the show is because we know they're lying. We know they made the whole thing up. We know none of that Jake calling on the phone to confess to them at a party thing happened because guess what? There was never a time before Jake's arrest where they're both out of juvie at the same time. Juvie records wow. show that like they're always one or both of them were in juvie and there was never a time to come in a party together. So the prosecutor wow. tries to suggest he's like, oh, Jake must have called them from jail because there was a brief moment in like October, like a month after Jake's arrest, when they were both out of juvie at the same time, when both Troy and Ryan were out of juvie at the same time. And so it kind of implies that Jake called them from the jail to confess to the the murder then. Wow. That's super incentivized by Jake to really like go through the rubble of trying to track down where they're at and then, <laughs> yeah. you know. Call and confess. Yeah. Getting cleared on the list to make calls, you know, and then, wow, that's something else. So, yeah. And like, what phone was Jake using? Exactly. Wouldn't it be pretty easy to pull phone records and listen to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, that seems like it isn't. I'm, I'm assuming everything's recorded on those lines as well, right? Well, they asked Detective Wells in court. They're like, could you check those records? And he says yes. And they ask him, did you check them? He says no. And that's it. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. That's it just gets even worse. Like they literally had three of the worst witnesses, including who is it? Jesse, the guy Jesse. who talks about how Ty and Jake somehow go and kidnap some 13-year-old girl from the neighborhood, bring yes. her back, proceed to, you know, either attempt to or actually sexually abuse her and then bring her back to her place. I mean, that like, that story is so insane to me. It was bad. When they're putting witnesses like that, like Josh and, and Troy on the stand as their star witnesses, and I'm using air quotes since we're on a podcast, if that just doesn't highlight for a jury the weakness in the state's case, it's like, that's what's so scary. How does that not resonate? That everything that they're saying is like completely inconsistent with one another, that the cops are basically testifying on their behalf, you know, and saying, oh, well, this is what they told us. And that's why I think then recanting makes it harder, actually, in the end, because if, say, like Burroughs and Ryan and Troy had gotten up there and all maintain these stories, they'd be so easy to disprove. You'd quickly show they're lying. You could quickly show everything else is nonsense. And like they would not stand up. Like if Josh had gotten on the stand and said, oh, I did see rape and murder, you could quickly prove he's lying. But when he's already starting out the gate, like first words on the stand are like, I made that up. I think it actually makes it harder for a case like this to defend against when they do recant. Well, yeah, and plus, and that's true, because then it allows the cops to testify as to what they yeah. they were told in order to impeach them, you know, like where otherwise they wouldn't be able to get that in in terms of, you know, what, what was told to the cops in another conversation outside of court that they're offering for the, you know, matter of the truth that it asserts. It's like, yeah, that's crazy. But you're right. Had the defense attorney simply done what you guys did? And found out that it was an impossibility for these two. To oh no, ever, no, uh... no, no! She did. She did. She got oh, the records. Oh yeah, she she pulled those records. She she actually did a great job there. Didn't matter. <laughs> wow, man, she's actually on it for that. That is so disappointing. 
that that's that makes me sad about yeah. the jury system. You know, they had it like, in black and white before. Then the story could not have happened, and they still decided it did. Wow. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered, but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed, 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. So beyond the two guys, beyond Jake and, and Ty, do they ever look at anybody else? They look really? at possible accomplices for them, yeah, but not anyone separate from them. Like the whole thing with Labor Ready, you know, like that seems like that would have been a place to start, you know, because I'm assuming that's like a day labor place, right? You go there, you get pick up. We actually get you know, more into this next episode and you'll find out why labor was never really looked at because the detectives started off thinking it didn't matter. So it, it took them a while to even get back that way and look at it. That would have been the first place I looked, you know. If you thought that's where she was last seen alive. If you have reason to believe that she was alive four or five days later, why would you even look at that? You know, I to me, if you're going to a, a spot that's hiring day laborers all the time, which is that what that's what it is, right? You go yep. there, you try to pick up work for a day. I mean, that seems like that would be like a. You get paid on the same day. Like you get a job placement, you go to your job, and then you come back to labor ready at the end of the day and pick up your check. Wow. I mean, to me, that seems like that would have been a very interesting line of investigation that they really should have looked into. I imagine a lot of them probably have records. You know, I imagine some of them may have had some violent type crimes in their backgrounds, probably some felonies. I would say your speculation is not too far off. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's that's a shame, you know, and it's one of those things now. The case is so damn cold unless you guys can crack it. Another reason, too, this case got so hard to defend is because of the messed up investigation to the point where the prosecution couldn't even say what day the party happened on. So as a defense attorney, like, how do you just prove a negative like that? You could prove right. it didn't happen Tuesday. They're just going to say it happened Wednesday. You could prove it didn't happen Wednesday. They're just going to say it happened Thursday. And they never do give a date. So there's effectively no way to really push back against it. Plus, even to time of death, because when, you know, when they're coming in and doing the autopsy and, and concluding that she died three days mm -hmm. from the date that she was. So they found right? she like, goes missing on Monday, May 29th. She's found on Monday, June 5th. The initial time of death is listed as like probably Friday, maybe even Saturday. So, right, that leaves her like out and about in the world for five days. Theoretically, according yes. to the theoretically, yes, which is, and they can't find one person that can really verify that they saw her. Like they were always hanging out at the same spots. It was Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know, it's like, ah, oh, man. It, I mean, they can't prove when the party happened, but they really can't prove that it actually happened. No. You know, other than Josh saying that some guy gave him a bag of weed to pick up all the garbage. Oh, and you scraped up all the, the candle wax <laughs> off the ground, too, dude. Like, really? With all the candles that were melting and all the candle wax that was all over the place. You scraped that as well, not just the beer. Like, 
Like, and kids aren't cleaning up parties like that. Like, and there's no way that he wouldn't have left a couple of bottles or, you know, I mean, it's implausible, the whole thing. I mean, do you guys even think the party happened? No, absolutely not. There's no party. There's there's no way. There's no party. My favorite part of the whole candle story, though, is that when the defense team interviews Josh and he starts talking about this, they don't really know what he's trying to say. So he literally draws pictures of kids with candles in their hands spinning them around (laughs) to show how they were raving. my god oh my god they do end up suggesting at trial that the most likely time would have been wednesday may 31st and not that it matters now but going through all the records and all the witness statements i realize it turns out that jake actually does have an alibi for that night and it's because of the hair salon and we know that on wednesday jake went there and got his hair cut to a mohawk on thursday he went back and got the mohawk like bleach so it had like the you know the fire effect going on or whatever um right. and there's one kid they talked to who says it was one night it was late at night um jake and i went over with my friend jamie nichols and we went over to tanya's house like after midnight and slept there for a bit and then left and this this kid vince olsen says oh yeah and jake had a pure black mohawk at the time which means it had to have been Wednesday night. It's the only night that right. Jake had a mohawk that was still black. Um, right. So if you piece all the things together, like the night they even choose for the party, Jake had an alibi all along. It was just really hard to figure out. Like in a world where the party happened mm-hmm. and like no one saying anything is in- completely implausible. There is no world that exists that kids aren't talking about it. Like what do they make? Like uh, some kind of weird blood oath? They all witness this horrific crime, this this poor girl being raped and murdered. Then they decide to cut all their palms and and give blood oaths to each other. Okay, we're we're gonna keep this this horrific crime. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, what, what, where would that ever happen? Like, how could that happen? They don't go that far. They don't go full panic, panic. But like, they do use Grim Crew as sort of like this occult influence. They, they don't cross the line like it was a sacrifice, but they definitely lean into the Grim Crew's like. Oh, my God. Why? Because they have the word Grim in their name. Like, what proof do they have that this crew does anything illegal aside from like shoplifting? Well, OK, so there actually was a witness. There's a lot of them who talks about how she heard they did blood sacrifices. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, you can imagine when we're like laying this all out about like, what do we include? What do we don't include? Like, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> you don't even want to talk about it because it, it doesn't add up. Uh, yeah. But does it like it seems like editorially speaking, keeping it out is tough because it makes it sound so incredulous. They use also the kids recanting as evidence, you know, saying like everyone's recanting now because they're scared of Grim Crew. They're scared of, you know, of retaliation for testifying. Uh, but like they're they're just allowed to say that with, a, with no foundation as to why they're saying it, other than the fact that they have the word Grim in the name of the skating crew. Kind of, you know yeah. what I mean? Where's the receipts that these guys are like? actually somebody that you need to worry about well keep in mind too like remember josh burroughs original story in episode three he doesn't say grim crew did this he says that the eok skater gang is the one who did it and then suddenly by trial they just totally forget the eok one a uh, gang is the one who did it and start calling it a grim crew murder but like josh's story is actually that it was eok who had the unidentified members that were helping with the murder and that was mostly involved wow. but i guess grim crew sounds scarier but going back to something you said earlier about how 
leaving certain things out of the show sort of has the effect of almost giving unwarranted credibility to the state's case. That's something Jacinda and I have talked about a lot. And it definitely is yeah. the reality because there's so much stuff that we just cannot include. But by leaving it out, we make the state seem more reasonable than it was. Yeah. And it's, you know, because as I listen to it and, you know, but I, I love the way that you guys do that. I, I Like, I love the way that you kind of did it in season one, too. Where you kind of like you lay out the state's case, you know, and you say this is this is what it is, and you're not necessarily poo-pooing it as you're going along when you're laying it out. You know what I mean? It's like you kind of methodically do that in the subsequent episodes. You know what I mean? I, I like the way that you guys set that up. Well, and one thing that we did not talk about on the show, the prosecutor in this case, his closing argument had what I think is probably the most factually inaccurate closing I've ever seen in a case. It was very notable. But how do you get into the fact that there's a hundred things they says wrong? One of the things that drives me crazy about it is how when they had Jake Silva testify. Um, how, well, let me ask you, like, how did he do? Did he do OK? I know that you had like when Renee's friends that were there for the trial, they didn't really remember anything about it, which kind of speaks volumes that yeah. it didn't really have an impact one way or another in terms of kind of like. Oh my God! Yeah, I remember when Jake testified, and that really he really screwed himself. You know what I mean? It didn't have that impact. But like, what was your take on his testimony? Was it helpful or or not really? Like he actually did fine. Like, but there's definitely facts in the case that you know. I mean, look, he hit her. So having the prosecutor get a chance to like grill your client how he hit his girlfriend and like discuss in detail the time yeah. that you know he smacked her. Like that's not right. gonna be great. Like. No. He, I mean, Jake probably did as great as you could do in that situation, but it's not a situation you put a client in. And here's why I really kind of. <laughs> so, again, I'm sure the prosecutor thought he was going to like score huge points, run circles around this kid. In the end, here's his big gotcha moment. On direct examination, the attorney for Jake asked him what Renee was wearing at Labor Ready. And he said she had on jeans, her red shirt, and had a sweatshirt in her bag. The next day in cross-examination, the prosecutor gets up there and insists that Jake testified she was wearing a sweater and just goes in circles with him saying, why did you lie about that before? Why did you do this? And then tells the jury that Jake was lying about how Renee had a sweater on. And it's all in his head. Jake never once said she had a sweater on. Like the, the prosecutor li literally imagined an answer from him and then used that as proof that Jake was lying. Oh, my God. Was there an objection? Is the facts not in evidence during Defense. closings? I know, I know you're not supposed to object during closings, but if the state's like up there flat out lying and making shit up, you object. Couldn't they have read back testimony? They, yeah. they should have. Like, they they the didn't. Hell? They should have. And but like, so again, like it's a huge kerfuffle. It's a huge like what the hell? But also at the end of the day, we're arguing over whether she had a sweatshirt on or not. They got there at 6 a.m. It was cold. Right. She could have had a sweatshirt on. Who cares? There's all this energy over this. Did Jake lie in the stand about her sweatshirt? And you're like, why Why are we even doing this? Why is this even, th this is your big gotcha moment? You have your, your teenage <laughs> right. murder defendant and you cross-examine him for a whole day and this is your gotcha moment? Yeah, not much of a gotcha moment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, from an outsider's perspective, it sure sure looks like a couple of wrongful convictions to me. <laughs> you know, I mean, I like, and I, I try to be pretty pragmatic about it. You know, because it's like cases are tough. You know, it's like you have a lot of people saying that they didn't do it. And it's hard for us as attorneys to kind of discern what's what, you know. But when you look at this case and you just look at the absolute absence 
of any kind of forensic evidence attaching either one of these guys to the scene. And like, did anybody find that the DNA of Jake's in the underwear to be damning? No, you know? I actually, I don't think anyone does actually. Surprisingly, I, I think everyone realizes like that's that doesn't mean sexual anything. relationship. Yeah, it's nothing. But it's here, nothing so here's what, here, okay. Goes back to Schultz again. Here's Schultz says in closing arguments. He claims, and again, this is not an evidence. Josh never says this, but this is what Schultz tells the jury. You know Josh is telling the truth because Jake's DNA is found in the underwear. And Josh described to you how Jake raped her. Then she pulled her underwear up. And then Ray and Ty pulled it down again and raped her. And no one pulled it up again. So that's why Jake's DNA was found in the underwear and no one else's was. And that's perfectly consistent with what Josh said. One, Josh didn't say that. Two, her underwear was still on when she was found. Right. How do they even overcome the fact that they didn't find any semen in the rape oh, kit? The prosecutor says that the, the maggots ate it. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just too much. I can't handle it. I can't handle anymore. Wait, you, wait, wait, wait. you didn't know that's a thing? You didn't know? <laughs> oh, yeah, the old maggot eating the semen trick? Yeah, it's the oldest <laughs> trick in the book. Yeah. Holy smokes. Wow. That's unbelievable. I mean, was there any actual evidence of her being sexually assaulted? She was partially disrobed. But other than that, no. Wow. <laughs> it does look like her her jeans were pulled like down her thighs a little bit. I mean, like her shirt's pulled up. So it's not an unreasonable hypothesis, but there's no, it's not. It's nothing it's to confirm not. there was sexual assault. And they said that the underwear in the back were pulled down, right? Just in the, the back. still in place, yeah. The full, yeah. And then, you know, but the thing that you guys were talking about, the roofies, and that they found the levels of GHB were, yeah. like, not enough to necessarily mean that she was drugged and not enough to mean, because I did not know, and I learned something when I was listening to the pod, I did not know that we naturally produced that in our bodies. What is it, an enzyme? Or like, what is it? Like, I, I didn't know that we naturally produce that in our bodies when we die. Yeah. You know? And, you know, normally in most cases I hear like a theory of someone being roofied and I'm probably going to tend to not discount it, but like that's not where my biases are to, towards expecting that in crimes. But in this case, right. I, I do at least consider it because there are some other odd facts. There I mean, are. It, like if it's a group scenario, then Yeah. You know what I mean? If yeah. it turns out that it's an individual, it's unlikely. It makes more sense in a group scenario than it does to me in an individual scenario. So what did they say? Because I know that he had talked about that he had given her the two necklaces. Was she, I mean, is that what was used to choke her? Or did they ever determine, was it the bra strap? It definitely, the bra strap has no signs of being used. Okay. The testimony from the medical examiner was like, I can't say it wasn't used. There's no evidence it was, but I... You know. But also, her arms were still in the bra oh, yeah. straps. Arms are still so in the bra straps. I don't so. know how that would have. Yeah, that that makes no sense, son. Yeah. It doesn't. And we don't know for like sure, but she had three ligature marks, and she had three hemp necklaces, and it certainly looks like a very possible, if not probable, murder weapon in this case. Yeah, was the necklaces. Yeah, and like hemp's a pretty sturdy. Yeah, pretty sturdy type uh, rope they make. You know. Oh man. That yeah, that's this is a befuddling case. You guys are knee deep in one that's a real to me a who done it. You guys are as always doing great work, and I hope that uh, I hope that you're able to dig up some dirt. We're we're certainly gonna try. I know that. If you want to hear about more 
uh, fascinating cases, follow Bob over at Defense Diaries and uh, hey. hear some of his reports on Delphi. Yeah, that thing, if y'all aren't paying attention to that one, it's a case. Like I, Susan, I, like, I have never seen a case like this procedurally. Ever. I, I have resisted so hard trying <sighs> to not go down. It's literally going to be like procedural law hypos for law exams for years to come. It, it really is. It's it's that case. And it's like, it's crazy. And there's so many like voices out there with it that it's like, I'm kind of like the lone defense guy out here, like screaming at the top of my lungs. It, it just like everything that the judge has been doing in that case has been next level. Here's what bothered me is seeing online all these people out there who were suddenly okay with the idea of a judge unilaterally deciding without a record to kick off someone's defense attorney. And they're like, that's normal. That's okay. That should happen. I'm like, oh, wow, we're screwed. This is how people think the law should work. Yeah. If they, they just don't believe in the Sixth Amendment, if only they believed in the Sixth Amendment like they do the Second Amendment, we'd be in good stead. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, man. Uh, yeah. Sadly, they do not. No, they don't. They don't. But I'm out there. I'm yelling. I'm trying to make noise. You know, it's like I've made headway. You know, it's like I, I spend a lot of time trying to explain to people what we really do as defense attorneys. And it's, you know, we're the ones who are actually protecting the Constitution from the government. You know, I mean, that like that, that's why the document exists. And people just don't get that about defense attorneys that we police the police. It's that simple. There's no other way to put it. You know, we protect the principles of the Constitution. Sure the hell isn't the government. It's not the state and the cops. I'll tell you that. We're the only ones out there doing it. So, and I'll die on that hill. That's it for this week's Sidebar. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Monday with Episode 6 of Murder at the Warehouse, where we'll look at what happened after Jake's and Ty's convictions. You've been listening to Proof Sidebar, a podcast by Red Marble Media in association with Glassbox Media. Send us your questions and comments at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. Follow us everywhere with the handle at proofcrimepod and on our website, proofcrimepod.com. Regular episodes drop on Mondays and you can find sidebars on Thursdays. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>